to episode 117 of Tech Sales Insights. Uh, this one will definitely be, uh, if not the best, one of the best. Uh, John, how you doing? Randy, good morning. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. Uh, and so uh, John, on the one hand, probably needs uh, no introduction, but the other hand, uh, we'll have to go through it. Uh, he's the author of A Qualified Sales Leader, which is an awesome read. It uh, goes through the story of a, a QBR, which kind of starts off with a, the, uh, as a train wreck, kind of goes through coaching uh, through several quarters, and then obviously finishes on the back end with the team uh, hitting goals, certain people being promoted, and you know, a whole, whole bunch of great, on the one hand, basics. But as, as uh, John and I might say, we, we might be old school, but I think a lot of those uh, themes still prevail. So fantastic book. Uh, the father or godfather, I guess he could say, of, uh, of Medic, which is uh, obviously timeless as well. Uh, board member at Snowflake, MongoDB, Sigma Computing, Lacework, Passboards, some awesome ones as well. Cyber Reason, Sprinkler, Sumo Logic, Fuse, uh, Consultant, also Pass to uh, Internog, HubSpot, CloudLock, Glassdoor, AppDynamics, and executive roles, I guess, when we could say uh, day jobs, uh, BMC, Blade Logic. High Roads, Ariba, Geotel, and uh, obviously starting out your claim to fame uh, back in the PTC days, uh, 89 to 98. You also do a podcast called Revenue Builders with John Kaplan, and uh, you're a mentor and uh, godfather to some of the industry's best for sure. So uh, I, I don't know when you started out uh, after uh, New Jersey Institute Technology, if you thought you'd be able to accomplish all that. Huh? I barely, I barely got out of there, so. I was lucky to accomplish that. That's awesome. And uh, for those uh, watching, I was never going to be a good engineer. That's for sure. There we go. We'll, we'll get we'll get into that as well. All right. Uh, so I uh, also want to thank uh, Convertive, who's our uh, sponsor today. Um, it's a really interesting business. So if you think about the uh, Rev, RevOps stacks, uh, sales marketing tech stack, uh, they're kind of one of the few or the best that I found that I could can actually help. So. There's several large companies out there that have too many tools. The CROs are not getting the value. They can help figure out how can you consolidate the spend and get better output. And then on the other hand, companies that really aren't that sophisticated or don't have that much, uh, they can also help. So they don't actually uh, prov uh, provide the tools themselves. They just kind of help, help assess. So uh, lots of great things there for uh, Convertive. And also a sales community for those that are members. Thanks. Uh, for those that are not uh, you can go to salescommunity.com and uh, click on spring free and you can get a free year membership there. And uh, Tucker uh, just posted that. So thank you, Tucker. Uh, and continuing with introductions. So John lives uh, here in Naples and also the great city of uh, Boston, which uh, fortunately with the uh, Patriots kind of slipping off a little bit, we got the, the Celts and Bruins uh, stepping up. So uh, we always need to have at least uh, at least two two teams in the hunt. Yep. And uh, besides work and family, uh, he's a huge golf enthusiast and working out, uh, has two uh, great kids, uh, Jack and Kyra. And um, I guess the question I got to start off with that uh, John Hanlon told me about is uh, the kids used to think you were a hitman. No, they used to think they would sit outside my office sometimes or even listen to me in the car when we were going out over forecasts. And they thought that I was running the Irish mob because they would hear me say like, you know, when are we going to get that deal? Who's going to get to that guy? If we can't get to that guy, you know, what are we going to do with them? 
you know, maybe we have to shoot this person. <laughs> so they, they would hear that type of lingo. And they literally thought, my daughter told me when she was 15, she said, dad, for the longest time, we thought you were running the Irish mob in Boston. There you go. And um, I have some great comments from some friends. Chris Riley, who's president of Data Robot, says uh, John's a terrific down-to-earth person who spends his time helping the next generation of sales leaders be successful. Uh, Chris Degnan, a uh, very successful CRO at Snowflake, says John has been an incredible coach and mentor to me at Snowflake. And over the years, I couldn't have done this job without his support. Uh, Andy Byron, president at Lacework, says John is a great person. And as a result, uh, the real sales leader. Uh, most guys see the results in numbers, which John has, but I see John as an awesome mentor, friend, and most importantly, incredible dad to two great kids. I'm humbled to call John my friend. John Hanlon, who we just spoke about, Ciro Persinio, uh, says the goat, the quiet assassin. So that kind of plays into your, uh, maybe your Boston mob. Uh, considered the best sales leader by 90% of his former employees. Uh, the other, t the other 10% he shot, uh, uh, let's see here. Then he says, uh, his, his best attributes are questioning then listening. He hears and sees things nobody else picks up. So, uh, all, all, uh, pr pretty good intros there. Oh, an introduction. Let's get into it. Let's all go. Right. So, um, Jersey Institute of technology, you're an engineer, self-proclaimed, probably somewhat of an introvert. So, uh, what was your kind of your first job and then how'd you get into sales? Well, at school, I was one of the few people that could actually talk because most of the, um, engineers were pretty nerdy. And, <laughs> um, so there was this, uh, outside in thing called the Institute for Electrical and Electronic Engineers. And then there was the stu student body also. So they asked me to be the president, um, cause I could at least stand up and talk to some people. And to make a long story short, I was running a, a panel discussion where I had people from different disciplines like design and production. And, and then after the panel discussion, I had round tables where everybody could have dinner with one of the speakers. So each speaker went to a different table. And when I got done with the logistics, there was only one table that was empty and it was sales and there was a sales guy sitting there. So I went and spoke to the sales guy and I thought, wow. Like I have a lot in common with this person. He can actually talk. We had a really good discussion. It was really interesting. And then I went home that next weekend because I lived at school and I went home and I told my dad and my dad never even graduated high school. And I said, I told him about the experience and he said, listen, I don't know a lot about this world, but I do know that good salespeople can make a lot of money. And I thought, oh, that's it. And I'm going to, I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going into sales because I'm not going to be a good engineer. So then I went and got a job at that time with Hewlett Packard, which, you know, today everybody knows them for printers and computers and all that stuff. But at that time, they mainly sold electronic test instruments to electrical engineers. That's where they started. So that's what I did. I sold electronic test instruments at that time, some of which cost $100,000 and you'd sell those things to the electrical engineers. So that's how I got my start. Awesome. And then maybe just kind of quickly go through your... Uh... Yeah, from there, then I was sitting there one day and I was a really good, I was a good sales guy and a, a, a guy, HP had taken over this company. They thought that, you know, software was going to eat their instrumentation, which eventually it, it probably did most of it. 
And a guy came up to my desk and he said, hey, I heard you're a really good sales guy. My name's Mike Reed. I said, hey, Mike, how are you? And I said, I guess I'm halfway decent. He said, look, you know, I want you to join my team. There was a company called Seracore that HP took over and it did everything from like designing printed circuit boards and all that. And I said, and he, and I said, well, why would I want to join? And he said, remember, this is like in the mid eighties. And he said, because everyone on my team makes over a hundred thousand dollars. And I said, okay, here we go. We're going into software now. So then I started selling software and I got promoted, sold a $17 million deal at that time to general dynamics, which was, you know, if you translate that in today's dollars, probably like a 35, $40 million deal more. And, um, got promoted to manager. I was doing that for a couple of years. And then I realized when I was in a meeting one time with all the second line managers, third line managers, and even the top VPs that they never talked about what's going on with the sales reps. Like, how do we make them more productive? What are the issues they're facing? Who's the competition? How do we get better? All they were doing was talking about these bureaucratic, you know, inside the company type, inside the company wall type things. And I thought, I don't want to grow up to be like these guys. I don't admire any of the things that they're talking about. That's not what I want to do. And if I stay here longer, I'm going to grow up and be just like them. So I got to get out of here. So I joined, I heard about from my sales reps, because I had a territory from San Diego to Santa Barbara. I heard about a company called PTC that was just getting started. Because a guy in Boston that was selling CAD had told my sales rep in San Diego that they had a pretty good demo. They hadn't had any revenues or anything yet. So I called the VP of sales and said, you know, I want to join your company. Everybody said that I was crazy because I was taking a giant risk, which I was. And uh, joined PTC and we went from zero to 1.1 billion in nine years. I wound up running worldwide sales. And from there I went to, um, I went to a company called Geotel, which was in the call center business. And then we got bought by Cisco for a couple billion. Uh, and then I went to Ariba. And at one, at one point, that was during the, uh, kind of the crazy days, like right, you know, when the internet started. And, you know, at that time, we were worth more than General Motors. Huh. And General Motors at that time was still like a really valuable company. I think we yeah. were worth like 55 billion, like really quickly. And then I tried my hand at, then the internet crashed. Remember the cliff? I don't know. There's people that are too young to remember that, but the internet basically came out. Everything went up and to the right and then bam, it just hit a freaking wall and everything went down. So then I went and tried my hand as a CEO company that I was at still in business, but I felt like after three years, I felt like this is not, it's not going fast enough for me. Like I really want to be in companies that are growing a hundred percent a year or it's not exciting. Like how am I going to go home and tell my wife that I'm working 15, 16 hour days and the company's growing 20%. Like, yeah, that's boring. Like, if we're going to live this life, like, let's really live it. So I went to a company called Blade Logic, and that was a startup. And we got, got to like 100 million, got bought, you know, at that time, which seemed like a lot, you know, for a, a billion from BMC. And then BMC asked me to replace their CRO and, and run BMC for like three years. And then after that, I decided it's time to uh, do a lot of things that you talked about in the opening, which was do some advising. Cause by that time I had so many people that had worked for me 
that they were now becoming CROs and they would say, hey, John, I'm a brand new CRO. My CEO is a tech CEO. We both know that we don't know what we're really doing. So can you come in and help advise us? And that's how it led to it. Advisory positions and then being on the boards. Yeah, that's fantastic. So uh, obviously, uh, Medic evolved into MedPick, an amazing qualification framework. Not really as much a uh, sales process, but I've certainly been a firm believer since you know early days of selling. If you qualify well, that kind of lays out the uh, kind of magic carpet for everything. But maybe tell us the real story, kind of how it all evolved. Yeah, I mean, some people like to rewrite history and tell you that they sat in a room and did analysis on all the deals they won and lost and they came up with medic, but that's not really how things happen. Things happen over a process of years, right, through experiences. So when we worked at PTC for the, at that time, they did what they called rapid prototype releasing. So they would release a new major release every six months, right? These days that sounds crazy because they can do a major release maybe every couple of weeks. And, and sometimes it might even work. Well, that's part of the problem. And that's how, you know, Medic came, came about. So in the beginning from until Rev7, so that's three and a half years, we had no sales process. Well, we did. It was called demo close. So you basically would go into a room with the customer, you'd write the five differentiators that you had on the board with Magic Marcus. We didn't even have slides. And we would say, this is what we're going to show you. The demo was so well choreographed. The software didn't always work. So the SE that was given the demo would wrap the power cord around their leg. And at that time, so everybody's grounded, we were doing these demos on what they called desktop. So there was a computer, you know, that was the size of like a shoebox, and then a big screen that went on top of it. And if they would just look at me, cause I'd always stand next to the computer and face the audience. And they would just look at me like we got troubles. And then I give them a little like head up and they, you know, pull the power cord so that, so what we would do is just demo and then close. And when we would demo, the customers would be really amazed cause it was such a well choreographed demo, they'd say, can we get a loaner? No. Can we get a, can we do a PLC? No. Can we get a lease? No. What can we do? You could buy. And the tension in the room just went really high. Sometimes you felt like you cut, could cut it with a knife. Yeah. So at that time we actually got kind of a bad reputation, which in some cases was deserving because we we were no different than pot and pan salespeople, you know, vacuum cleaner salespeople. They get their foot in the department and they're not leaving because it's demo closed. But man, I'm telling you, it really does build character. So then at Rev7, three and a half years later, the product worked and we decided, okay, you know, we can start to do POCs and, and, and with that time, what they would also call benchmarks. So we started to do benchmarks, but we quickly realized, hey, there's these two, $3 billion, you know, competitors that we had. Computer Vision was a billion dollars. Um, Unigraphics was a company that was backed by McDonnell Douglas. And Dassault Systems was backed and sold by IBM. So we were going up against these really large competitors with a wide breadth of product. So we figured out pretty quickly, the only way we're going to win is if we can narrow the scope and narrow it down to what the decision criteria was going to be. And if we could narrow it down, and the customer didn't want to narrow it down to where we could play, 
then we were gone. And it's also how we learned about like an ideal customer profile. You had to figure out what use cases yeah. would your software that, that work today, what use cases could it really play in? And at that time, it was like s- simple consumer electronics and maybe medical device manufacturers. So then even if we could narrow down the scope and customers would agree on it, there might be an enemy in the account. Maybe somebody that was running the current installed base of computer-aided design software. And they might say, after we even win the benchmark, they'd say, well, you got to do it again. And they try to change the criteria. So then we started to realize, well, we also have to know what the decision process is. How are you going to make this decision before and after we go ahead and do this and waste our time doing this POC? So... Then we realized, well, we can't control that by ourselves. So we need somebody inside this account that has some power and has some influence. And that's where we came up with this, you know, we need a champion. So we had it, we'd get a champion, we'd figure out that they had some power and they could help us control the decision criteria and to control the process. And at that time, then we started to win, you know, because we knew the ideal customer profile. We were in the right use cases. We controlled the criteria. And if you didn't want to control it, and we couldn't find a chance. We were out. We would just say, we're not playing. And which would actually, in some ways, if it was done professionally, would actually intrigue customers because they'd say, well, why are these guys not willing to do this POC? And then we'd say, well, because in simple terms, like you're not buying what we're selling. So if you want to buy what we're selling, you have to change the criteria. In some cases, they would. Very reluctantly sometimes, especially if it was multiple people trying to make the decision. So then we started winning. We started winning bigger deals. The product started getting better. It started going into different use cases. And we started to say, well, we're tired of getting these two and three seat deals. And a seat was like one license for one engineer. Why can't we go up higher and and get, get more? So let's go up to this guy that we tried to call the economic buyer, the person that had discretion that the champion would say, well, if you want to million dollar deal. You got to get up to this person. Okay. Well, why that person? Well, because they control the budget. They can decide if they're buying Apple laptops or they're buying CAD systems. Okay. Let's go try to talk to them. Well, we would go up there originally and get our asses handed to us because we'd go up there and still talk about product differentiation. And the customer would say, and we'd mention the word CAD or the acronym CAD. And they'd say, oh, I got a CAD director. He's four levels down. Go talk to him. So then we started to think, you know, we have to change the language that we talk when we get up here. So I used to actually say to some reps after we learned how to do it, like, especially if they were new, we're going in to talk to the VP of engineering or the CEO of this company. And if you even peep the acronym CAD, when we get outside, I'm going to beat the shit out of you. (laughs) Now I was joking, but I was trying to stress, like, do not mention that because that's going to get us thrown out. You had to talk more in terms of engineering cost engineering productivity, time to market, you know, pro- profitability and additional revenue because you got to market quicker. And then that started to play. So that's how we got the, basically the, the E, the D, the D and the C. And then, you know, what we also started to find out is, hey, you know, these guys, they also want to justify this stuff. So they can't just go buy it and they're not going to build a justification themselves. So we had to start to do what was the before process, every step of the process, how long it took, how many people involved. So maybe it took 10 engineers, six months to build this product. 
And now we could, with our product, based upon the POC, we would show that we could do that in three months with five engineers, yeah. right? And build the cost justification. That's where the I identify the pain and the M with the metrics came, came into play. So that's kind of the genesis of it.